the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cares of me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you. Thank you for being with us. We get started now at nine minutes after nine o'clock on this Monday, the 25th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. I'm looking at a video right now. It's just blowing my mind. It's a video of Eagle Pass, Texas. They are just overwhelmed. There are just scores of people sitting next to the river, uh, being kind of detained there, I guess, uh, while they try to figure out where to put all of these people because they've all been trained by the Biden administration to come across the border into the United States screaming, asylum, asylum, I'm seeking asylum. This is, of course... Garbage. It's trash. It is a complete exploitation of our once uh, legal and reasonable asylum system. They're claiming that they need political asylum because things are so bad in their home countries. They're being persecuted in some way or shape or form. And the reality is they are just trying to exploit everything uh, that um, uh, this country has ever offered. We have always been a welcoming country, and we are being taken advantage of. This Texas, and the worst part about it is, I look at this video, and I, this isn't how I plan to start the show. I just happened to be looking up at a screen before we got started, and it, it's just—it's heartbreaking for the people 
of Eagle Pass and for the people of El Paso and for the people in all of the Texas border towns. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's so extraordinarily unfair for the mayors of the big sanctuary cities to say, don't send them here, keep them there. It's a political stunt if Texas Governor Greg Abbott sends them here. It's not a stunt. It's survival. It is survival. This is just, um, it's impossible to, to comprehend the way this administration is treating um, the, the, the sovereign people of the United States of America. I'm looking now, I'm also getting a closer look at it. It looks as though there are individuals, okay, this is, this is, it looks like they're on the other side of the border because they are all lined up behind razor wire that was, um, installed by Texas National Guardsmen at the order of Greg Abbott, which is good. That's a great thing. But just the hordes of people there, of course, everybody's going to start screaming humanitarian, humanitarian, humanitarian. These are all humanitarian violations. You have to let them across. Um, wow, what a world. What a, what a world, what a country we are living in right now. Like I said, that isn't the way I wanted to start the show, but there it is. I happen to see it, and I had to react to it. It's simply remarkable. Well, welcome. Uh, we have a packed show today, and I mean literally packed. Coming up here in less than a half an hour, we are going to be talking with the uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan. That'll be at 935. We have a host of things to discuss with him, including the potential shutdown on August 1st if uh, Congress doesn't do what it needs to do to get um, important appropriations bills passed. And uh, if they don't, will they pass a CR, continuing resolution? There are some hardline GOPers in the House that do not want to do that. Uh, they are basically saying they will not push forward any more of the Democrats' spending policies by continuing with a signing a continuing or supporting a continuing resolution for a few more months while the same old battles are fought. So we're going to talk to Jim Jordan about that, as well as the fact that we're three days away from the start of the impeachment inquiry into Joseph R. Biden, the leader of the first family of crime. Uh, the Thursday, the 28th, is the start of that uh, inquiry. And we're going to find out what that looks like. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, January 6th, because uh, Congressman Jordan was supposed to have been on that committee, you may or may not recall. Uh, he was not allowed to be on that committee. Nancy Pelosi booted him as if it was her right to do so. But she did. And also Jim Banks from uh, uh, Indiana. At any rate, um, the form, the, not the a former FBI assistant director testified behind closed doors last week, something you didn't know about you didn't hear about, that there were so many paid federal informants in the crowd of protesters on January 6th that they actually lost count and had to do an audit to find them, to find out how many were there. But we, the people, were told there were no feds in the crowd, uh, which is a big, big problem, as uh, so many of these political prisoners continue to suffer at the hands of this uh, police state that Joe Biden has created. That's the reality of it. So we're going to talk to Jordan about all of those things at 10.10 more on that border, which is perhaps why I have it uh, up on my screen right now. Mark Morgan <clears throat> is um, the former acting commissioner of, of uh, Customs and Border Protection, and uh, he was f- on fire yesterday. He was at an event um, essentially... Uh, how do I want to, calling attention to, I guess is the best way to say it, the number of American citizens who have died 
from being exposed to fentanyl, poisonous fentanyl that continues to flow across the border unchecked because Joe Biden does not care about the American people. So there was an event called Lost Voices of Fentanyl, kind of a rally, and Mark Morgan was there speaking on it. And uh, we're going to pl- we're going to talk to him live at ten ten this morning. He's also working with FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. At 10.35, our man, uh, Dakoya Sawyer, who is um, uh, the uh, one of the co-hosts of the Monday Night Roundtable, he went up to Michigan over the weekend to hang out with people like Jesus and Carrie Lake. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because Jim Caviezel was, was one of them up there. They called it the GOP takeover of Mackinac Island, something like that. There's a big move in Michigan for the GOP to cast out the rhinos and give control to the conservatives. Uh, not sure exactly what that looked like, but Dakota will be with us at 1035 to tell us about it. And then at uh, 1110, we dive inside the union fight with the uh, UAW against the uh, big three automakers. Dan Schwartz is the president of uh, 1105, UAW uh, 1105, um, which is in Parma, I believe. And um, we're going to talk to him. I'm sorry, 1005, not 1105. Uh, The time is 1110, though. That's what confused me. Dan comes on at 1110. He is from UAW 1005. And we're going to talk about the wage increase demand, the 32-hour work week demand, the impact of the EV mandates and pledges from the big three on the plants and workers. We're going to cover it all from stem to stern with him uh, at uh, 1110 and try to figure out you know exactly where those guys are all coming from. So that's all a big part of the show today. And, of course, in between those interviews, squeeze your calls in at 216-901-0945 or 888 Let's get a quick uh, pledge of allegiance here so we can get on with the business of the day. Patriots, stand, face your flag, put your hand on your heart and join us. I'm going to trust you that you're doing that. Um, if you uh, don't believe in uh, the principles that we stand for, if you don't believe in the Constitution, if you don't believe in the parents' rights and more, well, then you probably don't believe in that flag either. So don't fake it. You're not required to stand and pledge your allegiance. You may instead take a knee next to the socialist ex-quarterback over there. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all it's a pretty astounding development that I need to start with this morning it's uh, it's mind-blowing quite frankly as the government moves closer and closer to a shutdown on October 1st. So it's less than a week. As the government moves closer and closer, when a shutdown happens, if indeed it does, um, there are going to be millions of federal workers who don't get paid. They're going to be furloughed. We know what shutdowns look like, right? Well, maybe not millions. Hundreds of thousands, certainly, of federal workers are going to be furloughed. Government business will stop. Government uh, run agencies and organizations will be shuttered for the duration of the shutdown. This is what will happen. But you know what will not stop if the government is shut down? While all of the services to the American people will cease, you know what will not cease? The Pentagon has announced that aid to Ukraine will survive the shutdown. Aid to Ukraine will continue, regardless of whether or not the federal government is operational or not. There is nothing more important 
to the Biden regime, and sadly, to far too many Republicans, there is nothing more important than the Ukrainian border with Russia. The American border, the hell with it. American institutions, ah. Government agencies, ah. American federal workers, ah. American contracted workers who work with companies that do business with the feds that will also have to shut down. Who cares? As long as the Ukrainians get their money. Republicans are voicing outrage at the Pentagon after the Pentagon confirmed it would shield its operations to support the war in Ukraine from any potential U.S. government shutdown. As the April, or excuse me, as the September 30th deadline looms for lawmakers to reach a deal on funding the government, the DOD said its activities in support of Ukraine and its military would be exempt from any potential shutdown. That's a staggering, staggering development. Operation Atlantic Resolve is an accepted activity. Accepted as in accept, E-X-C-E-P-T, not accept. Is an accepted, it is accepted, uh, from a government lapse in appropriation, said DOD spokesperson Chris Sherwood. Uh, Republicans lashed out of the plan on social media, saying it unfairly prioritizes Ukrainians over Americans, you think? Hundreds of thousands of federal workers will be put on furlough and not be getting paychecks, but the money that could be used to pay them is going to flow to Ukraine. $113 billion already has been spent on Ukraine, while, while Ukrainian allies in the region sit there and twiddle their thumbs. It's all up to the United States. We have pledged them, talking about the Biden regime, Quite literally, and and some on the right, too, or or I can't even call people like Mitch McConnell on the right, some on the Republican side as well, uh, as much as it takes for however long it takes. An unlimited amount of money for an indefinite period of time. It's it's impossible to comprehend, just even if we were in a sound fiscal situation here in the United States. If we were solvent, if we were, if we were you know, uh, um, uh, fiscally responsible and did not have just $33 trillion in debt already and weren't operating under a $2 trillion deficit right now, it would be ridiculous anyway. But considering the fact that we do have the debt and we do have the deficits and the government is not funded because appropriations bills are not being passed and we're in threat of a shutdown, for them to say the number one priority for the American people will not be the American people, it will be for the Ukrainian people, is impossible to reconcile. It's impossible to justify. And I, I, I defy anybody to try it. Now look, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I have sympathy and compassion for the people of Ukraine. But I have sympathy and compassion for a lot of people who are suffering in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons around the globe. I have sympathy for the Uyghur Muslims in China that are essentially are in new modern concentration camps and being disposed of in a genocidal fashion that the rest of the world is pretending isn't happening because of cheap Chinese labor leading to cheap Chinese goods being sent to the United States and around the globe. I am very compassionate to them. Do I want to send billions and billions of American dollars to try to save them? No, I don't. 
I am very compassionate for a lot of the suffering, starving people and oppressed people in, uh, in uh, countries around the globe. But we have to recognize that we cannot be the world's savior, and we have to look out for the American people first. Now, this, of course, is excluding the fact that an invasion by somebody as warped and demented and murderous as Vladimir Putin is something that we have to pay attention to. I'm not suggesting we ignore Ukraine. Not at all. And we should continue with diplomatic measures to try to broker some sort of a ceasefire and 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 a stoppage of the war effort by the Russians. Absolutely. But should we be just continuing to give money, throwing good money after bad, to Volodymyr Zelensky, who, by the way, spent part of his weekend in Canada with Justin Trudeau saluting and giving standing ovations to Nazis? Wait, what? What are you talking about, France? What do you mean? I mean exactly what I just said. There was a standing ovation given during an event featuring Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Canada and the Canadian Parliament. They introduced an individual named Yaroslav Hunka. He's a 98-year-old Ukrainian immigrant who fought for the first Ukrainian division, according to the Toronto Star. That division was also known as the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, which fought for the Nazis and as its paramilitary arm under the Schutzstaffel organization, if I'm saying those names correctly. The fact that a veteran who served in a Nazi military unit was invited to and given a standing ovation in the Canadian Parliament is shocking. At a time of rising anti-Semitism and Holocaust distortion, it's incredibly disturbing to see Canada's Parliament rise to applaud an individual who was a member of the unit of the Waffen-SS, the Nazi military branch responsible for the murder of Jews and others, and that was declared a criminal organization during the Nuremberg trials. All of that from a statement from the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. But 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 it doesn't matter. His 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 Nazi past doesn't matter. You want to know why? Because he's Ukrainian, and Ukrainians, of course, deserve every single thing that we can possibly offer them, from billions of dollars to standing ovations, regardless of the. This is how warped this has become. And I say this again, with full recognition and knowledge that there is a large, strong Ukrainian population of people, uh, you know, with history and ancestry there here in Northeast Ohio. And to them, I say God bless you and God be with you and God protect the people that you still know or family members that are back there. But there has to be a limit to everything that we can do. There has to be a limit. And I think $113 billion is that limit. And for the Republican, or excuse me, for the Democrats on Capitol Hill to say, If the government shuts down and the American people suffer, we're not letting the Ukrainian people suffer. They come first. That's un-American. That's not America first. That's America last. And I'm sorry, that cannot be our policy. All right, it's 926. We'll take a time out here. We'll catch up a little bit. We've got uh, Jim Jordan coming up. I'll ask him about all of these things and much more. It's a packed show. No reason to go anywhere. Put your feet up, have some coffee, and stay here. Always right radio on AM 1420, The Answer.
giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always Right Radio with Bob France and The Answer. Yes, indeed. That's exactly who we are and what we do. It's uh, 934. we got Jim Jordan coming up here in a minute. I'll tell you when he's connected and ready to rock. Uh, we're going to be talking about this government shutdown. There were apparently four key spending issues of 12 appropriations bills that have to be passed. Four of them are the ones that need to be done ASAP, but they probably will not be done in time for to, uh, to avoid the shutdown. Those four are defense, um, a bill funding Homeland Security, which is a joke considering we have no Homeland Security, literally have no security of this homeland. That's a reality. As a matter of fact, there's a new record that has been set. There have now been officially confirmed 6 million illegal border crossings since Joe Biden was inaugurated. 6 million, and that does not count the gotaways. So the idea of funding Homeland Security, which is non-existent, is comical to me. Also one funding the State Department, another one funding agricultural priorities. And I'm told that we do have the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee, Congressman Jim Jordan, on the line with us now on AM 1420. The answer, Congressman, good Monday morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I appreciate uh, you, you taking the time. We just spoke at the end of last week, so thanks for coming back. A lot of things have happened since then, strangely enough. Um, Congressman, we're going to start with the shutdown because it's, it's, it's imminent. Um, why are we facing yet another government shutdown, and what are the, the key spending issues in these appropriations bills that need to be settled right away? Well, the, the key issues are the, are the ones that the American people see front and center, the, the, the uh, open border, the, I mean, literally unbelievable disaster that is the Biden administration when it comes to border and border security. Uh, that's where we got to focus. I, I think I said this yesterday. Uh, that's the thing I would focus on putting on uh, any stopgap spending measure that, that keeps the government uh, open for a short amount of time. Um, and, and dare Chuck Schumer to say, okay, you're going to, you're going to be against that. That, that makes some sense. Um, the other, the other bills, uh, you know, the individual appropriation bills, I think there are a number of good policy things that we're working on on that, on those, uh, on each of those pieces of legislation that would protect First Amendment liberties, that would, that would help with securing the border. But right now on, on a short-term funding bill, uh, which is going to have to happen because we're, what now, five days from, from, uh, the end of the fiscal year. Yeah. Uh, that's what I hope we, we add to the legislation. And frankly, I would consider something else, which I think is real important. Cause this is, this is what's on the minds of the American people. I would consider saying no money can be used. To, to, uh, to fund uh, the, the prosecution of your political opponent, which is exactly what Jack Smith is doing to President Trump and the Biden administration. So we, we, could, we, could, uh, we could focus on, on that as well. Those are the two things that I think resonate with the American people, would be good for the country, that we should try to put on this, uh, this short-term bill. And, and again, say, okay, Chuck Schumer, go talk to Eric Adams about not, not wanting to secure the border. Go talk to the American people uh, who uh, the vast majority know the, the government's been weaponized against uh, against the very people it's supposed to serve. Um, going, going back to the, the border part, and you're exactly right, I was just ta- talking about the new record that has been set, which is not a good one. Six million illegal border crossings since Biden was inaugurated. That doesn't count the gotaways. And um, it, you just mentioned, you know, that's one of the things that we have to worry about first as far as funding. And I'm thinking to myself, why should we spend another nickel on the border? Because, quite frankly, it's not a matter of funds, is it, Congressman Jordan? It's a matter of desire. Well, it's a no, choice. No, no, the, the funds can be made it, available, it, but they're not going to do it. No, no. What I'm saying is, great point. What I'm saying is, when you, when we would, if we would fund the government for a short period of time while we work through the rest of these appropriation bills, mm-hmm. what you would put on that bill is no money can be used 
to process or release into the country any new migrants. And so you just say, time out, stop. That, 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 that's, that's the kind of language. It's not about, yeah, you're right, more money just means more people to process the, the open border that they're processing migrants through. Uh, that, that, that makes no sense. But you specifically write into the law, you can't use any money to process or release and that's how you stop it. You say, sorry, you can't. You're, we're not, we're not going to be able to let you in the country. Or if you come in the country, we're going to have to detain you. We're not going to release you into, uh, into the country, which is what's happening uh, as we speak. Of course, it would still take funding then to do the detentions. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there watching all of this. And, and the worst one, I, mean, I may have asked you about this before, and if I did, I apologize for the redundancy. But, but the video from about a week and a half ago or so yeah. of, uh, of migrants being let out, or it was in San Diego, I think, just as they crossed over from Tijuana, and they, and, and they basically let them all out of the buses and said, go, you're free. Didn't even take names, didn't process, didn't say, here's a date to return, go, you're free. One said, can I go to Chicago? They said, you can go wherever you want. You're out of here, out of our hands now. They just released them into the interior of the United States to go where they wanted, when they wanted. Lord only yep. knows who they were or what they had in mind. And I'm thinking to myself, that didn't cost any money. <laughs> uh, so, so if that's the mentality of the administration and the regime is to just say, wash our hands of the whole thing, let them come in and let them flow wherever they're going to flow, whether they're given dates to return or not, how dangerous is that for the American? people no it's dangerous particularly when you see the number number of individuals who who've turned up who we've encountered who've been on the terrorist watch list yeah. so of course it's dangerous that's just how bad this administration is how wrong they are how intentional this this whole process is that they've undergone now for uh, you know come, going on on three years so yeah but we're in the legislative body all we can do is legislate all we can do is on appropriations is limit how money can be spent and, and put into the law, you can't spend it for X, you can't spend it for Y. That, that's all we can do. And I'm saying we should do that. We should tell the Biden administration, no, you cannot release people into the country. And after all, Democrats happen to be for us on this one, including the mayor of New York City. Uh, that that's exactly right. We're talking to Congressman Jim Jordan. Last question about this is: when it comes to a short-term spending or uh, uh, spending a bill to, to you know a CR to to hold this thing off for a while, um, some of the hardliners in the party, in your party, our party, and the Republican Party are saying: no matter what riders are attached, we are not going to support a CR because it just is an extension of you know the Democrat policy. So they're not going to do well, it. What it, happens it, it, if there is no CR? Well, then, then you're into, uh, you know, you get to a shutdown situation, which I, I don't want. I don't think the country wants. Uh, what I'd rather have is actually good policy wins. Um, the problem is we didn't, we didn't get on all these, these bills. There's, there are 12 bills we're supposed to do because once the debt ceiling agreement was, was reached, where you, they set a number for how much discretionary spending we're going to do. Here's the top line number. Once that number was set, and actually it was a number lower than the previous year, which has never happened in, in, in the time I've been in D.C., which was a, you know, a step in the right direction, we had some of our, our colleagues who said, no, no, we can't, we can't spend that number. We've got to spend something less. And it's like two-thirds of the Congress has already decided. I mean, both House and Senate and the White House have signed off on a number. Let's focus on the policy and agree to the number. But they couldn't agree to the number, and so we couldn't get, any, we couldn't get the 12 appropriation bills done. And now they're saying, oh, uh, now we, 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 we can't do a CR because we got our, haven't got our appropriation bill done. <laughs> we couldn't get it done because you couldn't get agreement on a number that had already been agreed on, for goodness sake. So it's, it's like chasing your tail, and it's like it's frustrating. And look, I want to spend less, but um, I recognize that once you've got an agreement on a number, let's focus on some policy uh, victories relative to the border, relative to protecting the First Amendment. That's what we were doing. 
But um, we're just going to have to see how it all shakes out this week uh, as we as we head back to D.C. One more on spending, and this has to do with Ukraine, Congressman. Um, will you support a CR that includes more money for Ukraine? And before you yeah, answer I that, be- yeah, before okay. you answer that, um, according to DOD, and I just found this out over the weekend, if there is a shutdown in American workers, hundreds of thousands of federal workers are furloughed and all of the agencies are closed and so on, it will not stop the Ukrainian aid. DOD says that uh, Operation Atlantic Resolve is an accepted activity under a government lapse in appropriations. The the funding will continue. So yeah. how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, once again, it's, it's why everything seems backwards with with this administration, um, y- you know, it's a, it's like we can't secure our border, but we're going to send money to a, to a foreign country to help them deal with their border situation. I mean, it's like makes no sense. Even during a shutdown. Uh, even during the shutdown, it looks like. So I, I'll, I will look, I'm not for sending money to Ukraine. We're going to be against that. Um, uh, what I think we should focus on in any stopgap measure, any CR, whatever term you want to use is the things we talked about. Uh, I think those are those are the two things that make sense, and those are the things that resonate with the American people. And you, you, we've talked before, Bob. Uh, no one can define for me what the objective is in Ukraine. No, no one can define it. And until we can do that, why should we send money there? And and maybe when you do define it, maybe we'll still not send money there because we don't like the, the, the whatever objective that you, you set out. Because, but anyway, the the, the idea that you're going to continue to send tax dollars, American tax dollars, to a foreign country when we don't even know what the goal is makes absolutely no sense to me and that's why i voted against it yeah and and uh that's going to be a big issue uh when it comes to NECR if they try to include money for ukraine in the continuing resolution i don't think it'll pass and i think we're headed for furloughs and shutdowns and worse congressman big deal on thursday uh the impeachment inquiry begins into president joseph yep. r biden what will that look like well i think you're going to hear from some experts on outlining exactly why an impeachment inquiry phase of, of oversight is necessary um the, 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 some legal scholars, I think that, that's good to sort of set that predicate. I mean, you and I have talked about how it, this, this, this phase of oversight is certainly warranted when you look at all the facts, all the evidence, and all the things we've learned. And then you look at how the Justice Department was trying to sweep it under the rug. And we, we saw that clearly, I think, last week in the hearing that, was, uh, that we had in Congress, where, where they let the statute of limitations lapse for 14 and 15, 20, the texture 2014, 2015 for Hunter Biden. And those are the years he got all the money from Burisma. And the reason they let it lapse is because that leads to Joe Biden. That takes you to the White House. One thing to charge a gun charge on uh, in, in, in Delaware has nothing to do with the president. But the Burisma tax years where Joe Biden went over there and got the prosecutor fired, uh, that leads to the White House. And so, um, yeah, it's certainly warranted to move to this phase of oversight. And, and that's that's why we're here. And I think we're going to hear from some experts on uh on 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 that 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 situation and that that reasoning. Well, speaking of letting those uh, most serious charges lapse, um, we're talking about David Weiss. I understand you are also going to be count- calling on him next month to testify before. Is it yours or is it oversight? What what will be the be, central line of questioning for Special Counsel David Weiss? Well, we got a ton of questions for him. The first and foremost is why did you let the statute of limitations lapse? I mean, we're talking millions of dollars that, that Hunter Biden received from Burisma. And, you know, remember the facts there. He wasn't qualified to be on, on, on the Burisma. He got put on the board, got paid millions of dollars, fact one. Fact two, wasn't qualified to be on the board. Fact three, Burisma executives asked him to weigh in and take the pressure off of them that they were under. Fact four, Joe Biden does just that, goes and gets the prosecutor fired. And that fourth fact, by the way, comports entirely with what the confidential human source told the FBI, and the FBI recorded 
in that 1023 form. So that all happens. And then David Weiss sweeps it under the rug. And but for two whistleblowers and a judge in Delaware, we'd have never known this stuff. So God bless those people who came forward. But he let the statute of limitations run for those barista years. That'll be a key line of questioning, as well as this whole special counsel status that he didn't seek but did seek, and now you know back and forth on that. So uh, he's scheduled to come in on the 18th. Um, we, we, we're not sure if that's going to be a transcribed interview yet or, or, or open hearing. It might be a transcribed interview, which is uh, probably what I think we, we would prefer. But it's scheduled for October 18th. You know, Congressman, tying the first two stories together, um, can the uh, impeachment inquiry continue if there is a shutdown? Can the calling of David Weiss to testify and all of these things that you do in committee, will all those things be put on hold if there's a shutdown? Uh, it remains to be seen. I, I mean, we can continue with our work, which we will do in the Congress. But my guess is the executive branch will, will use that as a reason for not getting us the documents on time, not getting us the, the information we're seeking on, on, on the schedule that they would otherwise be able to do so. Um, I think they'll use that as a reason to, to slow walk things uh, to us. So, uh, but, but you, you do believe that if there is a shutdown, though, that the committee, uh, the committee hearings can continue even if they are yeah. slow walking information, but you will be, still be able to be on the job for that, that part of the. Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've got to be working for the American that, that, That's good to know because I was wondering if that's something the Democrats would like to do is instigate a shutdown here in order to stop the, uh, you know, the questioning of David Weiss and the in- impeachment inquiry for Joe Biden and more. So, uh, that won't stop and that's important to know. Congressman, last thing for you this morning. January 6th. Um, we didn't talk about this last week, but last week a former FBI assistant director, uh, as I understand it, testified behind closed doors to your committee, Judiciary, um, that there were so many paid federal informants in the crowd of protesters on January 6th that they actually lost count and they had to perform an audit to figure out how many feds there were from which agencies. But we, the people, were told there were no feds in that crowd, that, that everybody there was radical, you know, Trump-supporting MAGA extremists trying to commit an insurrection. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what you learned in, the, in, that, in that, that hearing? Just, just, you, you, just that. They didn't know. Uh, they, were, they were trying to figure out, according to uh, the testimony from Mr. D'Antuano, former uh, assistant director in charge of the Washington field office, um, he, he, by the way, told us a lot of interesting things on, on how they handled the, the raid on President Trump's home as well. So it was a very interesting witness that we had uh, a couple months back. But, yeah, this is one of the things you brought up. Now, we don't know if these were undercover agents. These were confidential human sources who were, you know, people that they were paying who weren't FBI agents. But um, what, we, what we do know is they were trying to figure out exactly how many they had on the ground. Uh, and that's why that question, that line of questioning came up in the, in the hearing last week. Mr. Garland didn't have much of an answer, but, um, Mr. Garland's answer on just about everything was, you know, he didn't have much of an answer on, for, for many things. So I think what his three favorite responses were, uh, ongoing investigation, internal deliberation, and you'll have to ask David White. So I mean, those were sort of his three go-to responses. But on this one, he didn't really seem to know anything. Um, so yeah, we're, we're continuing to dig into that and we'll see if we can find out. But 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 what can we the people do with that information? I mean, we were told directly when we said, you know, there were members in that crowd who were protesting that day who were screaming, fed, 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 at people like Ray Epps and others who were encouraging everybody, come on, we got to go in there and so forth. And we were told, no, there were no federal agents there. That's a red herring. That's a lie. That's just people trying to cut yeah. their own rear ends. Um, now they're admitting, yeah, there were feds in the crowd, and we didn't even know how many there were. There were so many. 
that has got to be a game changer for the political yeah, persecution of so many of these people a, who are languishing in either the gulag or who have been sentenced to prison. Yeah, it is important. That's why we're we're going we're committed to you know getting to the bottom of it. We'll we'll keep digging and do what we can do from from the legislative branch doing oversight. Um, I do think it's interesting because I remember when the January 6th committee interviewed Ray Epps, and they said, oh, no, there's nothing there, nothing there. Well, Shazam, they just charged him last week. Now, they only charged him with the misdemeanor, well, the misdemeanor. which I find, inter- well, I find interesting in light of some of these folks who've been charged with, you know, who received a huge sentence. I think some of these guys weren't, weren't even on, on the Capitol grounds and received a huge sentence. And there's Ray Epps encouraging people to go in, saying all the things he did. Um, and he, he gets charged with the misdemeanor. So uh, you had a guy who wasn't even in Washington D.C. who who received twenty two yeah. years in prison, and you had Ray Epps who I was know. in D.C. on the grounds on video. Let's go. We got to go in there. There were people yeah. who are who are serving lengthy prison sentences right now who were just there singing because that was considered to be according to the way the judges interpreted as an, inter- uh, as, as an encouragement of the insurrection. You know, singing you know patriotic songs or whatever, but yeah. they were against the governor. I mean, I'm not kidding. <laughs> but Ray Epps waving people. But right. Ray Epps waving people in, saying what he was saying. Oh no, no, that's just a how is that not after, conspiracy after to years. commit insurrection, conspiracy to yeah. interrupt a federal proceeding, and all the other things that have been charged exactly. here? He gets a misdemeanor slap on the wrist, and and I'm and again, we you know, I'm, I'm I don't know anybody personally who is there. But I know enough people who do know people who personally were there who are suffering greatly yeah. because of this, Congressman. Yeah. And then there yeah. are real feds on the ground there who were pushing these people and egging them on into doing things they wouldn't ordinarily have wanted to do, and yet they got caught up in it. And the and the feds themselves are not taking responsibility for this. Great point. Great point. That's why we continue to dig into it. The um, um, because it's just so I and I, I like you. I, I don't. I, I know I've talked to people who have friends or family who were who were there, and I just they got caught up into it. And your your heart goes out to them. If, if they did something wrong, they did something wrong. And they should be charged with it. But but uh, some, some people uh, were, were were simply um, you know like you say just singing or whatever. Yeah. And um, and then the, the, you you contrast what happened to them with Ray Epps here. Like a, something doesn't make sense. No, it really does not. And something needs to be done because, you know, as you say, if you did something wrong, you should be charged. Those people should, whatever they did wrong, should have been, it should be done now because it's been two and a half years. Let's call it time served. Whether they've been sitting in the gulags or going through this, having their, their personal lives turned inside out, it ought to be time served. And I'm not talking about anybody who punched a cop or broke a window or right. anything else. Those right. are things are different. But again, sure individuals, are. individuals who are there who have been, uh, you know, living under this cloud of uncertainty, what's going to be done to them for the last two and a half years? need to be have these cases dropped until they start charging people like Epps with felonies and not a misdemeanor to make it look like we're going after everybody. Um, what's being done to the people here is just wrong, Congressman, and I hope you do keep, continue to dig into that and we start to see some action on their behalf because this is just unacceptable. Yep, sure is. Congressman Jim Jordan, thank you. Your plate is full. We appreciate you your bet, time, sir. All right. That's Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. You know, I have... Um, it's 9.53. Quick quick follow-up message here I want to share um, before I go to the break. I, I, I talked about it, and it might have been two weeks ago. Somebody you know was complaining about me softballing Jim Jordan. I promise you Jim Jordan does not feel softballed because I demand answers, and sometimes he doesn't have them, and I'm not stopping asking them because I want answers. Uh, we might It might appear as though it's... 
you know, uh, going easy on him because we agree on 99% of the issues on what, you know, that we discuss. We do. Uh, that's reality. So I'm going to be giving a lot of attaboys to Jim Jordan when he does attaboy-worthy things. But when there are issues that I do not feel are being addressed on behalf of the American people, including and maybe even especially the nine or the uh, the uh, January sixth uh, uh, p- p- uh, pris- political prisoners, sorry, political prisoners, um, I'm going to continue to hold feet to fire, and that includes Congressman Jordan. Keep digging into it. Fine, that's great. But then what? What action is being taken? What action is being taken against the DOJ? for lying about there being no feds on the ground, and then getting testimony from an assistant uh, FBI director that there were so many feds on the ground, paid informants, whether they be federal employees or just contracted for that job, but paid feds on the ground uh, in the crowd of protesters outside the Capitol, encouraging them to do things, encouraging people that they would then be charged for doing. Where's, Where's the federal accountability for that? I'll keep asking Jim Jordan that question. Any other member of Congress I get on, I'll keep asking that question. It's not a softball game. This is reality. And I don't care who you are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold feet to fire on behalf of the people. It's t- uh, 9.55. We'll be back. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Hour number two underway now, seven minutes past 10 o'clock on this Monday, the 25th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. Secretary Mayorkas, right? Exactly. This is why I call him. He's one of the most evil men on, in this administration right now. He should be impeached, Absolutely. And blood is on his hands. And I don't say that lightly. I've served six administrations over my 40 years, both a Republican and Democrat. This isn't about politics, but it is. They're making it about politics. For their greed and their quest for perpetual political power, they are jeopardizing the safety and national security of our country. That sterling message, stirring message, I guess even better, uh, was delivered by Mark Morgan, former acting commissioner of Customs and Border Protection, as well as ICE, now a senior fellow at FAIR. He was speaking at an event called Lost Voices of Fentanyl in Washington, D.C., and he joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer, to talk about the growing crisis at our southern border. Mr. Morgan, it's good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bob. Well, you were fired up, and I could not uh, agree more with every single word that you just said. Alejandro Mayorkas has failed uh, the American people, although it may not be his decision. He may be simply following the orders of his boss, the person who appointed him as Secretary of Homeland Security. It is the position of the administration and of the Democrat uh, Party as a whole, is it not? Uh, You know, you said it's not about politics, but the Democrat Party is what is really preventing us from securing that border. That's right. It's not about politics, but they've made it about politics. So what I would say is, sure, with every cabinet-level official, there's some degree of, of following, quote, orders. But when, when you, the administration that you're a part of, when it is failing to enforce the law, when it fails to enforce the Constitution of the United States, when its policies are detrimental to our nation's national health, 
and national security, that's when you have to stand up and say, I can no longer be a part of that, number one. Number two is he is enacting on his own and under his own authority policies that are detrimental uh, to this administration. He has literally uh, told the Border Patrol agents their job now is no longer law enforcement or national security, but rather as a processing agency. It's his policies that have told ICE that no longer is interior enforcement your job. If being in the, if you're in the country illegally or have a court order removal from a judge is not enough to remove, move you. I mean, I could go on and on. And that's why I say this man has blood on his hands. He knows every single day Americans are dying, migrants are dying, and he's doing nothing but doubling down on the open border policy. Let's talk about people dying as a result of these policies. You're right. You were, as I said, you spoke at the Lost Voices of Fentanyl. Tell, tell us about that event. It was a great, it was a grassroots effort. It's actually a mother who, who lost her son uh, due to fentanyl, actually April Babcock, she started this. And now they have over 30,000 members. And it really was a day, it wasn't just about remembrance. It was a day to bring education and awareness uh, to the White House and to the entire country that, that our borders, first of all, they're not secure. And illegal immigration is not a victimless crime. As you have millions of illegal aliens park across that we've had in this administration, resources are pulled off the line away from their national security mission to process them and release them. That literally hands operational control over the cartels who exploit that. And what, what do they do? National security threats, criminals, and drugs, including fentanyl. And we also, one last thing on this, Bob, real quick, we have to change the narrative. The majority of people dying from fentanyl, it's not because they have an insatiable appetite for fentanyl. Most of the deaths, it's because what they took they thought was a harmless drug, but unbeknownst to them, it was laced with fentanyl from the cartels. And that's why we call fentanyl a poisoning, not an overdose. That's exactly right. And there have been a lot of families of people who have been victimized by that who did not know what they were taking. And indeed, they were poisoned to death. That's a great, great way to phrase it because it's accurate. Mark Morgan is our guest, former acting commissioner of CBP, also a senior fellow at the Federation for American uh, Federation of Americans for Immigration Reform. Do we need to militarize the border to stop these cartels who are bringing fentanyl and much more? I know at, at least one Republican candidate for president, maybe others have, but Ron DeSantis said uh, back in June that he would send troops and he would authorize the use of deadly force against migrants suspected of smuggling those things in. Um, do we need to militarize and actually engage this, uh, you know, kind of as a, as a wartime activity? So short answer is yes, but let, let me let me caveat that a little bit. This is a very important question. First of all, we've had military personnel on our borders for a long time, including multiple administrations, both Republican and Democrat. The challenge is is that our borders are so overwhelmed and they're so unsecure and the cartels so powerful that that literally on day one when we get a president that actually that White House that understands border security synonymous with national security. We, we don't have the resources or the policies in place to do what we need on day one. So on day one, we're going to have to forward deploy a massive amount of military personnel, in my opinion, while the policies catch up, like the Remain in Mexico program, like the asylum and cooperative agreements that safe third countries we had with all new thir- uh, three uh, northern triangle countries, and until the Mexico force that we forced Mexico to stand up as they did under the Trump administration to secure their own southern border. Until that, those policies and actions catch up, we're going to have to sec- we're going to have to deploy more military down there to secure the the border. And the last thing I'll say is. We have to fundamentally shift how we go after the cartels. I served 20 years in the FBI. The way that we've gone after the cartels, the traditional criminal prosecutorial 
you know, method, it's failed for 30 years. We have to go after them the same way that we do terrorist organization. And if that involves kinetic precision, surgical military kinetic operations in Mexico, that's what we need to do. Um, Take that a little further, if you could, uh, former Acting Commissioner Morgan. Um, You say we already have military personnel at the border, and you're right, obviously, but it's a matter of what are they authorized to do. Uh, Again, DeSantis said, I will endorse and authorize deadly force. In other words, we will shoot migrants who are coming here that we believe to be members of the cartel or mules for the cartel. We will physically stop them with deadly force if necessary. Are we there? I want to be careful on this because I understand what he's saying. Deadly force is very clear. Deadly force is narrow, right? Deadly force can be authorized by by civilian uh, personnel when their life or another life is in imminent danger of serious body harm or death. I don't think we change the deadly force policy. I don't think we need to change any deadly force policy. I don't think we need to give the military an expansive authority there. What we need, though, is personnel down there that's actually going to provide a show of force, that's going to actually hold the line, that's going to actually act as a part of a strategy to deter those who are violating the law and apply consequences to those. The military can provide a, a, just a variety of capabilities. Now, they have sophisticated surveillance cap- capability, especially on the mobile platform. Uh, they can provide aircraft, uh, whether it's fixed wing or a rotary wing, and just, uh, just personnel down there. I think if we have that, while we're working the policy issues, while we're working the diplomatic issues with Mexico, I think you're going to see that on day one we can have a detrimental impact on the flow of immigration. But again, it's it's not just about what we're doing on borders. We have to take the fight to the cartels. Like I said, the way we've been going off the cartels, the only thing that's happened, Bob, in the last 30 years is the cartels have gotten more powerful, more influential, and they've got more money in their bank account. And so we've got to go after them. And if that means like we do at Plan Colombia, where we join Mexico, we do kinetic uh, operation. And again, surgical precision kinetic operations. Look, I'll give you an example. We, we know the precursor chemicals are coming from China. We know what ports of entry in Mexico they're going to. We know where the super meth labs are in Mexico. We know the routes. We know everything. We can take the fight to the cartels if we have the political will and courage to do it. Um. I have a two-part question for you, Mark Morgan, um, regarding Texas. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has deployed the use of buoys, uh, kind of a buoy wall as opposed to a border wall in the middle of the Rio Grande. And some of those buoys, I guess, have been outfitted with razor wire or barbed wire or something so the people cannot try to negotiate their way past past those things. <laughs> Excuse me. He has also... Uh, placed apparently miles and miles of barbed wire along the border on the actual land, uh, just on the other side of the river, again, to stop people from crossing in. And the President of the United States it told his his uh, administration to cut it down, to literally cut the barbed wire, the razor wire down, to give easier access for these illegal aliens to come into the country. Number one is, what do you make of Biden literally stopping a border protection that was put up by a state? And number two, um, along with that, the Biden administration has proposed, or at least has suggested, a remain in Texas policy. Not a remain in Mexico policy, but remain in Texas. Stop sending these people up to New York into Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philadelphia and other sanctuary cities. Make them stay in Mexico. Let the people of Mexico suffer all of the, the problems that come with this unchecked immigration. Yeah, Bob, look, this why I, I love being on with you because you're very well versed in the issues. Those are two important ones. Let me take the first one. First of all, 
So you've got a state that's literally, they're on the front line. Uh, Texas has about 75% of the southwest border. So they're receiving about 75% the brunt of the, the, the crisis. Now, that's initially, right? We know that, that the threats don't stay in Texas, that they go through every state in, in the country. That's why we say every state is a border state. But they do receive the brunt. And, and the governor's doing the right thing. He's actually trying to protect the state. He's trying to protect the state from illegal aliens coming in, uh, drugs, criminals, and potential national security threats. And this administration, as you said, is actually actively, proactively trying to stop them from protecting their state and securing the border. So what I'll say is, is this is a continuation of their complete abdication of the Constitution. The Constitution is very clear. There's two articles that come into play. One, Article 4, Section 4, and then there's Article 1, Section 10. The, the first article says that the federal government has the responsibility, the mandate, to protect states from outside the, threat, from outside the state. And if they fail to do that, for whatever reason, Bob, then the states have the self-help remedy of the Constitution, which says very clearly if the federal government doesn't do it, doesn't protect the states, the states can protect themselves. So that's exactly what Governor Abbott is doing. He's using the Constitution. He's using the state's Constitution as well to protect the state. And this federal government is, continues to violate their constitutional oath and obligation by trying to prevent the governor from doing his job. And then he goes a step further and he says, oh, by the way, I'm, I, you know what, Texas? Nope. I, I, not only am I going to open the borders and send a beacon out to the entire world that now is the, come, now is the time to come in illegally, but Texas, you're going to have to deal with the issue 100%. Another issue that is completely unconstitutional, but it shows just how political the, their, their motives are with respect to the wide open southwest border. Yeah, it does exactly that, and I'm glad you understand it. Um, President Trump was very, very successful with the Remain in Mexico policy, getting the Mexican government to go along with that. It was the right thing to do if we are not going to change our asylum laws or reform our asylum laws. We have to then, in that backlog, to to be able to hear those cases, uh, we have to have them remain in in another country. They are already free of the country that they claim persecution from. They're in another country, so they're not being persecuted in their own country. They can wait there until we have room and time to hear their cases. Now, having said that, here we sit with asylum laws that are just absolutely awful. All they have to do is come over here and scream, uh, asylum, I need asylum, and, and they're free to go. The Biden administration and congressional Democrats continue to blame the Republicans for this border crisis because the Republicans keep walking away from comprehensive immigration reform. In other words... They refuse to seal the border until millions of illegals who are already here are granted amnesty and a path to citizenship. Correct. Will that fundamental dispute ever end where asylum seekers can come here at, you know, by, by droves, six million, by the way, now, six million crossings since Joe Biden was inaugurated. We just crossed that, that threshold. Um, will that just continue to happen in perpetuity? Because I don't think any Republicans are ever going to agree to give amnesty and a pathway to citizenship to millions and millions of people who are already here, and the Democrats won't act on the border until they do. I, I completely agree. And, and here's, and I hope you'll listen. Stay with me for a second. And when did this start, Bob? This started. Look, he, he's still one of my favorite presidents in modern history. But this started under President Reagan. The 1986 Amnesty Act. That's the first time in our history where we actually let border security be held hostage for amnesty, just as you described. The Democrats said, nope, we will not give you border security unless you give us amnesty. And the Republicans caved. And then President Reagan signed off on it. 
And, of course, neither happened. But ever since then, that's been the battle, battle cry of the Democrats, of the open border advocates. We will not give you border security unless you give us amnesty. And the Republicans, woke, you know, they finally woke up and said, that didn't work. That was a failure. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to let you hold border security hostage for amnesty. And now we're in this perpetual fight forever and this false narrative. At the end of the day, the, the, the flow will continue until we secure the border. You know, my analogy is this. If, you're, if your roof is blown off, you know, in, in, a, in a tornado and it's raining, do you, do you call a water mitigation team to clean your carpets and furniture when you still don't have a roof? No, that's stupid. Fix your roof first. And once you get your roof fixed, then you can come in and start cleaning up the mess that's inside. And that's where we're at. We have to stop the flow. We have to secure our border. We have to stop the crisis from continuing to flow into this country. And once we do that, then you can have discussions later on. But you cannot, you cannot let border security be held hostage for amnesty. Yeah, and because of that, everything you just said is accurate, and the Democrats are saying, "Then too bad. Then you don't get it. You don't. You don't get that border Correct. sealed unless you give these. Uh, you know, unless you give these millions upon millions of people here. Right. And by the way, I'm so sick and tired of hearing the 11 to 13 million dollar million uh, illegal immigrant number. Now again, we have six million more who have just come in <laughs> since Biden took office. So that puts us up around 17 at least. Um, but but yep. that continues to be the, the you know the issue. So Mark Morgan, last question for you. I just want to kind of summarize sure. it here. We got drug traffic. As you pointed out with the uh, fentanyl uh, event that you're at, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, human trafficking, terrorists on the terrorist watch list entering, scores of foreign nationals from adversarial America, uh, countries to America, including China, uh, Pakistan, Iran, and others, all free-flowing across the border. And, and, and Bob, least... what I would say, I, I don't interrupt you, but let's not forget criminals, right? Let's not forget the murderers, rapists, pedophiles, aggravated felons, and gang members that are among the 1.6 million known Godaways in the past 32 months as well. Thank you. And by the way, I'm glad you brought up the 1.6 million known Godaways because that wasn't included in the 6 million border encounters that they just taught, that I just quoted for you. Th- those are the ones that they actually know about, that they have processed. Yep. That doesn't count the Godaways. So we're over 7.5 million. But my question yep. is... Has this administration essentially surrendered American sovereignty for the first time in our in our nation's history? Yes, because and here's why, and here's why I can say this so quickly. One, just the numbers you rattle off, right? So, so the the, the six million plus a total encounters, the one point six million uh, known gotaways, and the total gotaways are higher, way higher than that. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the answer is yes, because they know each and every day that there are no border patrol uh, uh, resources on the line. There are some areas, Bob, where 80, 90 percent of agents are not on the line. They're literally not patrolling our nation's border. They've literally handed operational control over to the cartels in large areas of our southern border. And they know by doing so, cartels are exploiting, and that's how drugs, criminals, and potential national security threats are coming in, jeopardizing our nation's safety, health, and national security every single day. And that is getting worse by the day, and they know it, and that's why my answer is a quick, easy yes to your question. Mark Morgan is working hard along with all of the other great folks at FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. He's a senior fellow there. He's also former acting commissioner of CBP. Thank you so much for continuing to work on this, shine a spotlight on it. Uh, we'd love to have you back on again soon because this is uh, not going away anytime soon. Bob, hey, I appreciate you too. You're you're out there. Look, I've served my country in, in one capacity, but you're serving our country equally by getting the truth and information and, and educating the American people about the truth with respect to the border security crisis. So, thank you. That is very kind of you to say. Thank you, sir. 
All right, that's Mark, uh, Mark Morgan, former acting commissioner of CBP and also former acting director of ICE. He's uh, served in the FBI as well. Kind of forgot that part of his resume, but uh, he is working very, very hard for all of us. It's 1025. We've got a timeout coming. Uh, we're going to talk to Dakota Sawyer after the bottom of the hour, host of the Monday Night Roundtable on WHK and the chairman of the American Union PAC. He was up in the belly of the beast over the weekend. That means Michigan. He was up in the state up north, but for a pretty good reason, and I'll let him tell you why when he comes on on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, 1035. It feels like we've been on the air for five hours already. It was a lot of information packed into two interviews with uh, Jim Jordan And with uh, Mark Morgan, um, and even though it was only an hour and a half, it feels like five, and maybe it'll feel like a lot more than that later today. I've got Dennis Prager as soon as this show is over, so if you uh, can't get enough of what I'm doing in the next three hours, or in this first three hours, rather, we have three more uh, for Dennis Prager a little bit later today, so make sure you tune in for that. I uh, want to bring uh, Dakota Sawyer back to our program now. Dakota's one of the uh, co-host of the Monday Night Roundtable. He's also the president of the American Union PAC, and he was up in the belly of the beast. He actually crossed state lines into that state up north. Uh, I don't know if we can forgive him for that, but maybe we can, because maybe he was there for a good reason. He went all the way up through it to the very tip of it into uh, Mackinac Island. Uh, Dakota, good to have you. How are you, my man? Pretty good. Uh, pretty good, Bob. You know, I'm still in that state up north here. Um, but, You're you know, still it there. Was a great... Have you I'm been kidnapped? There. Have you been kidnapped? No, I have not been kidnapped. Uh, we had a we had a great weekend um, here on the Mackinac Island for the Republican Party of Michigan's leadership conference on the island that they've been hosting since 1947 every other year, um, and they've uh, they just pulled off a successful event uh, here with Jim Caviezel and Carrie Lake. Jim Caviezel and Carrie Lake. I did see one of your posts that said you actually got to talk to Jesus today. Well, the man that actually played him, but that's kind of cool. Tell us about the entire event, because I don't know if a ton of people knew this was happening. Tell us what, what the entire event was about. Yeah, so uh, just to give a backstory, um, the conservatives actually now have control of the state party up here in Michigan, um, and they are actually promoting conservative values and actually acting like the Republican Party. Um, and so this is a biennial event that they have every year in September on Mackinac Island. Uh, and they just host a leadership conference to bring grassroots activists up um, and to let them listen to good uh, speakers. In the past, this has always been like sort of like an elite conference uh, for mostly the most wealthy um, so that they come to the island and they just fundraise for the party. Uh, not this year, though. We made this more of a grassroots-centered um, conference. We had inv- uh, encouraging speakers. We had great speakers. Um, in previous years, it'd just be the good old boys club speakers, and no one was really interested in listening to them. And most of the time, the auditoriums were empty when the speakers were on stage because people were out shopping. But this year was different. This year, we had interesting speakers. We had people staying in the auditorium for the main event, all day long, we had constant people coming in and out, but we had a very good crowd um, for this for these events, um, and people just enjoyed themselves this whole weekend at the uh, Mackinac Grand Hotel, um, a very historic place, uh, and it's a very beautiful view uh, where you could see Lake Michigan and Lake Huron where they merge together. 
And it was a great conference with Caviezel, Kerry Lake. We also had Dr. Alan Keyes, former ambassador under President Reagan. Uh, we had a, a ton of great speakers speaking about different issues, Second Amendment, medical freedom. Uh, and we really made this a grassroots conference for the first time in the history of the conference. What's, uh, we're talking to Dakota Sawyer. He is the uh, uh, co-host of the Monday Night Roundtable. I'm sure you'll be recapping a lot of this tonight on the program. Was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy there? Was he a part of this, too? Because I saw an article yeah, said he spoke in Mackinac. Uh, Vivek was Mackinac. there. He was, yeah, he was on Mackinac. He, uh, he uh, gave a speech on Friday, um, and he even hosted just a little meet and greet on the island for people that wanted to come and, and talk with him. Uh, it was very great. I got to meet him backstage before he went on. And, it was great. He came up with his son, and you know, it was uh, it was really something you know interesting to see. Where he gave a really great speech. People were enthused, um, but they did do a straw poll, and I'm uh, safe to say that uh, Trump won the straw poll by 65 percent with uh, 408 ballots out of 575 around that uh, the total number of ballots cast. But Trump soundly won the straw straw poll. Vivek came in second with. Uh, with uh, 70 votes, um, but it was it was overwhelmingly people supporting Trump in the primary straw poll, and then uh, they did they did like uh, Vivek uh, in his speech that he gave Friday night. So I'm I'm looking at an article about this <clears throat> that says the Republicans in Michigan are going to change their primary system, and that was the reason for this vote. Is it did I did did you hit that? And I misunderstood it. Uh, Michigan GOP adopting rules to combine a presidential primary with 13 caucuses, and this is a plan that favors Trump loyalists. It will give him and them more leverage. So that was that was done at the state committee meeting. Um, I can't speak towards that um, as I didn't. I was just the event organizer for the conference, okay. um, but that was at the uh, that was sort of uh, doing at the uh, meeting at the state committee. Um, like it was going on at the same time, though, right? It was it was also on Mackinac. So, yeah, it was on Mackinac, but this happened Sunday after the conference had concluded. Got it. Uh, the okay. committee members stayed over, and uh, they did uh, a, a committee meeting. Okay, got it. So, so, and the reason I was wondering is because of uh, the way I saw some of the language of this thing. Uh, it was there has been a strong move to try to shove the rhinos of Michigan to the side in favor of MAGA um, uh, organizers, candidates, supporters, and so forth, or otherwise known as America First people. Is that is that kind of the vibe you got? That yeah, that's the that's the vibe, and that's you know been the whole goal of leadership is to root out rhinos um, and to put in good conservative people um and that's that's what this party's done um since uh, chairwoman karama was elected in february as, as the chair chairwoman uh she's cleaned house um and i mean she's been a powerhouse conservative fighting for values that both you and i agree with bob and, and she's just been a wonderful asset to our movement um and she's been promoting and cleaning house and trying to put rhinos at bay and you know it was great the detroit free press they tried to do a hit piece by Say well, Chairwoman Karamo told her uh, told the rhinos to go pound sand. Well, it was a great headline, and all of our sponsors were happy because they listed every single one of our sponsors in their article. Um, so it was they tried <laughs> to hit us, but we, we just keep moving. That's good stuff, Dakota. Um, you mentioned Carrie Lake too. Um, what's the connection? Why was she in Michigan? So Carrie Lake, um, we had her speak at the conference. Um, she was she gave up fantastic to motivate the crowd to really help out the party 
because, and she said this in her speech, she's not really helping out too many Republican parties because she knows many of them are controlled by rhinos. Um, and so she's knowing that uh, Michigan is a good conservative state. and She wants to help out the Michigan Republican Party uh, with their biggest fundraiser. Um, and really, she's been pushing to help out uh, Michigan and helping out the Republican Party up here. We even did later that night that she spoke on Saturday, we did a cruise with her. Uh, with with 20 people in the boat, um, and it was nice to go under the Mackinac Bridge and back. And, and Carrie had a, a fantastic time up here on Mackinac Island. Did she confirm or hint further that she's going to run for Senate in Arizona? She she said she hasn't. Uh, she said in her speech that she hasn't made up her mind, and she'll probably make an announcement here in the next couple of weeks. But uh, the, the 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 thing is, is that she said that she's thinking about it. It is interesting. I'm going to assume that there was discussion because she was there, and I think her robbery, meaning that she was robbed, I think was even worse than Trump's uh, in Arizona. It was so brazen and so obvious what was done to her in the governor's race in Arizona. So was was uh, how much of the, the weekend and how much of her talk was spent um, talking about election integrity and and making sure that we stop the steal in 2024 and that sort of thing that was that was her main figure of the speech was election integrity and fighting back uh because you know here in michigan that's that's how they stole the election was here in michigan um and we we promoted election integrity we had a, a panel on election integrity even the state committee uh formed a just a, a subcommittee of on election integrity to investigate um, I, I don't know if you saw, but there was a news article um, where in one of the counties up here in Michigan, they found the evidence of, you know, massive amounts of fraud. People were fired up, uh, uh, you know, about this and, and fuming because, you know, for years they've been saying that the 2020 election, there were irregularities and that we need to get our elections under control and to have election integrity. Yeah, that that is very important. Uh, you, you want to jam out with me for a minute, uh, Dakota? Hold on. I know you know the song. This is an actual. This is an actual song that Carrie Lake is uh, is uh, listed as as one of the performers. Your middle finger, the middle class. They've pissed off an already pissed off woman. Eighty-one million votes, my ass. And that's why, because they use parts of her speeches and interviews uh, in this song by the Truth Bombers. Tell me, they played that as she went onto the stage. That had to be her entrance music. So her actually, actually, her entrance was American Woman. Uh, and that was her entrance song and how she entered the stage. Uh, well, okay, I guess I can see it a little bit. But if she if she doesn't roll in everywhere she goes to 81 million votes my ass, then she's doing it wrong. Because that, sh- <laughs> that shines a spotlight on the whole, especially if she's going to do her talk on American uh, or uh, election integrity. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a hard pick of, of what she wanted to go up on stage, but she chose American Woman. But I, I do want to say, uh, when we had Jim Caviezel, he came right after uh, Carrie Lake. It was great. You know, he, as an actor, he, he could really do great impressions. And to see him actually, what he did is he went into character as Ronald Reagan and delivered a time for choosing uh, his 1964 speech 
Uh, and really? it was uh, impactful. And, and the room was packed. I mean, people loved it. He, he got a standing ovation. Uh, and Caviezel really uh, nailed it out of the park. Um, and actually, actually, we were escorting him to his taxi to, uh, as he had to leave. Uh, he, he went into character as the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and, you know, his, his just repertoire is, is amazing as an actor. He is one of my favorites. I agree with you. He's he's tremendous, and I need to hear his Reagan uh, rendition of that speech. Do you? Is that? It, was it recorded? It'll, will it be uploaded anywhere? Is it available, or is that all private? It it, it was all private. Um, so unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. But I mean, to sit in the room uh. and to hear it, it was it was fantastic. And if he ever does it, you know, it, it's one to see and not to miss. Uh, it, you know, the, the fake news is like, oh, you know, nobody's here at the conference. It's record low attendance for this Mackinac conference. And we showed pictures like, what, what are you talking about? There's probably 1,200 people in this room alone, and there's standing, people standing in the hallway. And so, you know, the fake news always tries to push the narrative, oh, it's low attendance. No one's really coming. Well, well, I'm looking at an article. At I'm looking at an article that featured Vivek's uh, speech there, which is why I wanted to confirm that it was at the same thing. And uh, it's on MichiganAdvance.com is what it's called. It's a big, long article, and it, and it kind of talks about what he talked about. But here's how it starts. I think we're in the middle of a war in this country, said Ramaswamy, speaking to a room that was about half full on Friday on Mackinac Island. Half full. That's how they started this thing, uh, Dakota. Of course, that's what they always do. They always try to downplay the numbers. But, you know, we ha- uh, had a great crowd, uh, enthusiastic crowd. I'd say, you know, the, the room was probably 75% full. And, you know, they always downplay it because we have other events happening during this conference. There's breakout sessions happening out. We had the presidential suite and the governor's suite of breakout sessions, uh, people where they can come and meet some of the speakers. And so this is this is a normal conference where people are coming in and out. Uh, but you know this is they're always saying that down trying to downplay the attendance, which just isn't true. Yeah, because they want to try to minimize the appeal of the Republican message. That's what they're essentially doing. Well, Dakota Sawyer, uh, I'm glad you checked in with us. Uh, I know you're going to probably talk about a ton of this stuff tonight on the Monday Night Roundtable. Anything else you want to uh, let us know about there? No, but you know we're 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 excited to uh, roll out our plan that we're going to be having Senator Ron Johnson up here in the state of Michigan um, for a fundraiser on, on October 21st. Um, so if your listeners want to make a trip to that state up north, uh, they can do so and come out to see Senator Johnson. We're going to have a fantastic uh, Medical Freedom Day here at Frisky Farms and and up in in the uh, upper part of Michigan, not in the UP, but in, in towards the northern part of of Michigan. All right, good stuff. Dakota Sawyer, uh, also the president of the American Union PAC. Dakota, thank you, my friend. Enjoy your time. We'll talk to you again. All right, thanks, Bob.
let these bastards get away with it. One million votes, my ass. He had the swamp going after him, and he was still getting stuff done. And now we have stumbling, bumbling Joe. Hey! I miss the bull in the china shop. Hey! I miss the mean tweets. I miss Donald Trump. Hey! 81 million votes. My ass. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Third and final hour underway now, seven minutes past 11 o'clock on this Monday. It's the 25th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. If you missed uh, any of the first uh, you know, two hours of the show, we've had some great interviews, a lot of important stuff you may have missed. Check it all out. It'll be all uploaded to uh, whkradio.com, whkradio.com. Congressman Jim Jordan joined us in the first hour. We spoke with uh, Mark Morgan former uh, Customs and Border Patrol commissioner, about the uh, unchecked border in the second hour. And then, of course, we just finished up with Dakota Sawyer as well. Now we're going to turn our attention to the strike. And no, not the writer strike. I don't give a rip. Has anybody noticed, by the way, that the writers, the Hollywood writers, and that the actors are all on strike? It is not affecting my life one single iota. If they stayed out forever, I wouldn't care. Uh, I'm sorry, just not not important. What is important is the strike that's going on at the UAW, because this affects my life. This affects your life, our ability to get from here to there, our ability to transport ourselves to our jobs. It's all up in the air now. The cost of cars is going to go through the roof. If there is a massive uh, uh, de- increase in costs to the automakers because of this strike that has uh, been uh, Begun, been begun, that has begun, I should say, by the UAW. What's that going to mean to you? How long does the strike have to last for us to start feeling the pinch of uh, even smaller shrinking inventory on car lots, which means every price tag and every window is higher and higher? What are we going to do about it? Then, moreover, what about the workers? 
What about the workers and how are they going to survive or how are they going to navigate or manage this massive big three shift into EVs? All of that is what we need to discuss. And joining us now to do that is a brave soul because he's coming on to talk about this stuff and it may not always be agreeable. Dan Schwartz is the president of UAW Local 1005. He's been kind enough to tell us the ins and outs of where things are in this UAW strike. Dan, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much i appreciate that very much how are you sir i'm doing well how are you i'm doing good thanks for 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 agreeing to come on dan i'm going to start with the first thing that i said when i heard the strike was taking place <clears throat> actually as it was you know going down to, to the zero hour to get there and i heard what some of the demands were this is the forty-six thousand pound elephant in the room so we're going to start with it and i say I start with 46 because that was the wage increase demand 46 percent uh, wage hike was what was being asked for at the very beginning of this whole thing. It's not something that most people can really comprehend because most of us, you know, we get a cost of living wage increase. Maybe you get a three percent or a three and a half percent or something like that. You come out there asking for forty six percent, so doggone near half of your current salary on top of it again. And most people are like, "What? You got to be crazy!" Tell me how that number came about and why that was uh, the one of the one of the the biggest sticking points in this. Uh, in this negotiation that led to the strike? So, so yeah, 46%, you know, if you go back and, and, and total up the pay increases that uh, big three executives have given themselves over the last four years, uh, it, it's, it's pretty close to 46%. So I, I believe that's where, you know, that's where the, that's where it was born or that, that's where it started. So, uh, so yeah, uh, we knew going in that our demands were robust at, at the most, but you know, my, my opinion is you start high and then and come on down. Yeah, but that's beyond high. That's a number that nobody can even wrap their brains around. And and I understand when you say that. Well, that's what the uh, you know the management gets uh, or has been getting or whatever. But I'm you know again speaking as just you know a regular schmo. Um, I don't expect to make as much as my bosses make. I don't expect my pay increases to be commensurate with what my bosses are or what the owners are, the CEOs are. These are people in positions that are much different than mine. They have much bigger things that they are responsible for than I am with my small place on a line somewhere, whether it be in a, you know, in the broadcast industry or in the automotive industry. I've got a small place here. Why, why do we say, well, this is what management gets, therefore we as the employees have to get? So, so you know, nobody nobody blames uh, you know the workers are always to blame, and and management always wants to, to blame the workforce. Uh, although it's uh, you know it's the workforce, it's our blood, sweat, and tears that that make those corporations the profit, uh, and we want our uh, you know we want our share. So yeah, we started off at forty six percent, and then. Uh, you know, eight weeks ago, or, or I think we're moving on nine now, to uh, to go to the table and start negotiating. And uh, General Motors has refused to do that. They waited till the last minute to uh, to come to the table and start bargaining. And uh, to the point where we had to go ahead and, and file an NLRB lawsuit against them to uh, to start bargaining in in good faith. And now here we are, uh, you know, three weeks into this, and uh, uh, you know. And really, if they would have came to the table and started uh, negotiating like they should have, we, we wouldn't be where we're at right now. We're talking to Dan Schwartz, UAW Local 1005 president. So 
I'll just have to just agree to disagree with with the forty six percent as a starting point. I think it's I think it's exorbitant. I think it just smacks of greed, uh, if I can be honest with you. But but okay, you say we we want our share. Okay, that's like I said, we'll disagree on what a fair share is for an employee versus management. But let's get to the second giant elephant in the room here: thirty two hour work week for forty paid hours. That's that's beyond you know a, a negotiation tactic I think anyway and I'm not I haven't been in part of too many union negotiations but but that's beyond anything I think anybody has ever heard of before you only want to work four days a week four eights or or whatever the case might be but paid for forty how do we get to that as a demand that led to this strike uh, again we started out you know with our demands we we understood they were uh, you know inflated. Uh, you know, the 32-hour work week is, is you know, it was was a demand. But uh, you, let's go back to the corporate greed thing again, or, or, okay. or greed. You know, okay. when you turn around and you take General Motors and you bail them out like we did in, in 09, uh, we reached into our pockets and, you know, we gave them a lot of concessions. And, you know, we, we did what we had to do to make General Motors profitable again and viable again and you know the sales of cars and vehicles go up the profits go up the prices of cars go up to where our members can't even really afford what we buy what we manufacture uh and in the price of a car uh labor when we went ahead and bailed them out in, in prior to 09 you know it was only about eight percent so like $3,200 on, on a $40,000 vehicle. Uh, after we bailed them out, you know, the, and gave them concessions and did what we wanted, you know, for them, what we agreed to do, uh, it went down to 2.5%. And if you look at it today, it's at 5%. So, yeah, uh, you know, they, they made a combined of $250, million, $250 billion in profits of our backs, our sweat, and, 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 and our labor. And labor's at 5% right now. You know, nobody asks about administrative costs or, or anything like that. They just want to turn around and bl- uh, blame labor on it. So in the 14 years since um, that bailout, and as you said, you guys helped to, uh, you know, to kind of rescue them by renegotiating your, your deal, um, were there were there concessions that were supposed to have been made by the 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 management of the big three to come back to you guys that have not been in other words i I don't know what the terms of the 2009 agreement were were you supposed to get certain amounts back by a certain point in time by say 2011 2013 and so on and so forth uh and have they not been met or was was the contract as renegotiated met by both sides so you know Back back when we went out in you know in '09, and, and not only us as uh, employees but as taxpayers, you know, we bailed out General Motors and gave them what, uh, what what they asked for. And you know, moving forward to four years ago when we were on strike for 40 days, and you know, General Motors was was as profitable. You know, we wanted some of those we wanted some of that stuff back in return, and, and we got some back. But again, like I said, we're at two hundred fifty, two hundred fifty dollar, two hundred and fifty billion dollars in, in, in profit, and you know these executives are are giving themselves huge raises, and you know they want to get to this EV market and and do all those things like that. You know this isn't all about the hour, the dollar, 
hourly wage, okay? There's, there's a heck of a lot more to this, uh, Bob. You know, you have cost of living allowance, which, you know, everything's going up, but we're staying, we're staying here. We're being left behind. You know, retirees are, are still getting what they're getting, but they're, they're being left behind. Uh, you know, you have two tier wages. Dan, Dan, explain that to me. What do you mean by left behind when you talk about cost well, of living? Are you not getting cost of living raises? No, our cost of living was we, we, we gave that back. We, you know, cost of living allowance we don't have right now. Uh, so the price of cars, the price of gas, the price of food, the price of clothing, the price of college, you know, are, are all going up. But our our pay isn't going up. We're left behind. So, okay, so you know, so, so so you're saying you're saying that for 14 years you have not gotten any cost of living raises, a cost of living allowance raise. No, yes. we have gotten a small raise. I think it was like maybe six percent over over the last four years, which really isn't years. nothing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, that 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 that's not a lot. Let, you mentioned EVs, and I'm glad you did because I'm I'm, I'm sitting well, here. Hold on. Let me, let's let's oh. go back. Let's go back to some. Let's go back to okay. you know we're, we're not only fighting for economic justice. You know, even for people that are non-union and, and outside the the auto arena. Okay. Let's talk about people that are working in these factories that are making fifty percent to sixty percent less that have no pension. They have no health care. They have no vacation. They're not entitled to any other bonuses or anything like that. They're forced to work overtime and work next to somebody that has, like my sonority, 25, 26 years. And I don't have to work Saturday, but they look at them and say, guess what? You have to work tomorrow. And they have no, there, there's no recourse, you know, and they won't hire. There's people that are, have been retirees for six, seven, or I'm sorry, retirees. Uh, uh, two-tier temporaries that are like six, seven years hoping to, to catch up to a to a last-year traditional employee. I was out in Toledo Saturday with uh, some of my brothers and sisters at the Toledo Jeep plant, and I'm hearing the stories there that they're, they're working 10, 12 hours, and they'll come up to them almost after eight and say, you've got to stay another four, but a guy – with 30 years seniority or 25 years seniority is walking out the door. It's almost kind of like creating a hostile work environment because you got two people working side by side doing the same job, but one's getting paid 50% less and the other one's making, you know, he's able to, to provide for his family and, and it's not right. So, so, uh, so, know, so is that, that is that different, Dan? It, 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 if you just turned us on, it's Dan Schwartz, uh, UAW Local 1005 president here. We're talking about the strike and some of the conditions that led us to where we are now with this stalemate with the big three automakers that's going to cost all of us a ton of money in very short order if the strike doesn't end soon. Is that new, what you just described as far as temporary workers or uh, these individuals who are you know uh, making half of what the actual line workers normally would? No, they, they've been doing this for years. Uh, you know, we fought we fought with General Motors uh, years ago to get temporaries hired permanently. Okay, they don't get the same uh, 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 personal savings plan or, or retirement that I get. We, we they don't get the same uh, uh, pay. You know, they, they work at a, a lower rate, and it takes them longer to get to. I guess you would say scale. Uh, they don't have this. They have to pay more for their health care than than uh, if you were hired before that. So, uh, yeah, this has been going on for quite a while. 
Okay. We want um, everybody on the same. We want everybody on the same playing field. We want everybody at the same level, which what they deserve. Okay, so so I I need to switch to the EV part part of this question now. The UAW, in fact, both sides, uh, management and and union uh, uh, work or union uh, uh, spokespersons have talked about the shift into EV. Everybody knows all three of the big three are are converting into EV, tra- you know, transitioning into EV production because of the mandates that are coming from the federal government. And in Ford's case, they just made that decision on their own even before any um, federal mandates were were put in place or even discussed. But what they're saying. is is um, we need the flexibility. It's going to cost us a lot of money to transition the plants over into making, you know, the overwhelming majority of the electric models. We can't just be, you know, giving out massive raises like this. Uh, your side agrees that the EVs are coming, and you say that, and in fact, let me quote, uh, let me quote uh, Sean Fain in this, we will not let the EV industry be built on the backs of workers making poverty wages while the CEOs line their pockets with government subsidies. So the, the union's position appears to be make all the changes you have to make, but don't take it out of our pockets. You have to come up with this, uh, you know, with this massive pay raise. Is that, uh, is that a tenable position to actually get this transition done? So here, if they want to go to EV, they need us to get to get them there. Okay, they need the working, the workforce, the labor to get them there. They, we got, we have gotten General Motors to where they are now to be that profitable. So yeah, I, I agree with uh, Sean Fain, and uh, so they're gonna, they need to 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 make us whole, to make us. Uh, a part of the part of the uh, the plan to, uh, to to get them there. You know, there's a lot more. To well, they're they're plan. claiming they are Dan too. You know, I mean, you know, the the GM the GM uh, the GM spokesperson said they have made quote historic wage increase offers and a huge economic passage that they uh, package that they have put on the table here. But there's that 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 your side is saying it's not enough. But they're saying they're absolutely willing to make you guys whole uh, in order to yeah. get this transition going. But you say it's not enough. So exactly Historic. exactly where you know when you start at something crazy like forty six percent, and I think it is crazy. And when you start at pay us for 40 but we're only working 32 i can't even imagine what kind of a cost that's going to put on the companies that's going to be passed on to the consumers on the car lots um exactly how far are you you know i know you're not the chief negotiator but but exactly how how much more reasonable do you think you're going to have to be before we get there yeah again that was the starting point you know i'm like you said i'm not sitting up there at the table i know right so i i I don't all right uh, it, it, it was a starting point for sure. Um, and it was, I would say it would be inflated, but you know what? It is what it is. You know what? These, Mary Barra, I'll use her for example, $29.7 million a year before bonuses. Okay. And, and she, she says she gets paid on, uh, her conversation is, uh, performance based. Well, I have to perform my job so that that factory is running the way it's supposed to run so we are profitable. We deserve the same 
conversation as well. Here, not yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but 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 Dan, but Dan, I don't know, I don't know if that's fair to say. I don't think, in fact, I don't think it is fair to say because what you do, what you hold on, but 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 what you do, what you're responsible for in your part of that plan, your particular you know participation. I don't even know what your job is within it, but but it's very very I'm different. The CEO whose performance affects how many millions of shareholders in the companies, and and not to mention all of the pensions of the retirees and your pensions as 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 time goes on, and you guys put all this time in as well. If their performance at the top level of things is is not up to par, the whole company collapses. Um, you guys are responsible for a very different part of this whole thing, which is the actual production thereof. You you do understand that also it takes an awful lot more to to achieve a position like a CEO than it does to be a foreman on a line, right? Doesn't mean one is well, be- doesn't mean doesn't mean one is working harder than the other, but I mean in terms of you know people people do an awful lot to get those positions, uh, and 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 typically when you are responsible for the outcome and the and the income rather of multi billion dollar companies, you are certainly going to find yourself in a position to profit a lot more than somebody who's responsible just for making their quota that day on a line. Uh, yeah. Is that not fair to say? Or? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with you here. And I think we're going to agree to disagree. Listen, 46%, it's, it's an inflated app. And we understood that. We're st- that's where we're starting our, our, our negotiations at. And those were our demands. Now, where we end up, I don't know. You know, that has to come back to the membership and get voted on. But if you look at a current wage we have right now, okay, and, and you, you, you get the gross wages and you add everything up at the end of the day with the way things are inflating and, and stuff like that, you, you hardly have anything to put away, especially when you're making half of what I make. If we were to increase our wages 36%, I think, I think what I, what did I see? It was like a $350 a month, uh, 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 that's what you probably have left over after you have a house payment, car payment, utilities, food, and if you're paying for your health care, you can't. It's, and that's if your kids don't go to dance, don't play football, don't play baseball, aren't your hot water tank doesn't doesn't go out. Dan, you're you. making it sound like you guys are working for slave wages, and I don't buy that you are. What's no, the average? What's the average starting wage? What's the average starting wage right now for a UAW plant worker in any one of the big three? What's the average starting wage right now? A starting wage yeah. is sixteen sixty five. If you get hired right now, okay. So you get hired in at sixteen sixty five, and exactly how that's how long what, how long do you have to work hiring. before? The, yeah, go ahead. That's uh, okay, hiring or temporary, that, and that's what they're hiring right now. Sixteen sixty five. Okay, so those are those are temporary starting people. Now, what's the average wage though for the average uh, uh, employee? Thirty two bucks an hour. Thirty two bucks an hour. Okay, thirty. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people, to be honest with you, that make thirty two dollars an hour. Um, and, and and now is that as much as the CEOs make in the at the head of the big three? No, of course not. But you're not suggesting that it should be, should it? Because again, what they're doing is they're responsible for the success or failure of multi billion dollar. Uh, multi-billion dollar companies and 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 all of your jobs here's the deal it's, it's real simple we're fighting for economic justice and we're fighting for social justice okay we want that home homework balance we want what what we're deserve what we deserve and we're fighting for others even outside the auto industry 
that are working, anybody that goes and puts their boots on every morning or goes and works in a hospital or go works in a factory or is a school teacher, policeman, fireman, whatever, everybody's made these, the corporations and, and, and are making huge profits. We just, we don't want to be, I don't want corporate money. I just want what's fair to me. And I'm going to tell you right you, now. But you, you, don't, you don't think that an on, average wage of $32 is fair, though, Dan? Hold on a second. Let me ask you a question. If you walk into any factory where somebody's making $20 an hour and you say, hey, what if you were making $30 an hour? You think they, would, they wouldn't be okay with it? I'm not sure I understood I the question. Would. I'm not sure I understood so, the question. So, so you're if saying, I offered you're somebody ten dollars more an hour than what they're making, sure, every, anybody would want that. Over but, over here over a four year agreement. I'm still over not sure of the question. Years. Then you you said you're going so, from twenty so to thirty dollars. I'm asking for here. If I'm making twenty dollars an hour, I'll, I'll try to answer it as I think you're asking. If I'm making twenty dollars, and I know that within four years I'll be up to thirty dollars an hour, that's that's a twenty five percent pay increase uh, uh, in in my salary in in just four years. That's pretty doggone good increase as far as I'm concerned. That's an average of six percent a year. So so you and I agree. So you and I agree on something. It's well, a, it's a, it's, it's a really good. It's a good thing. That's, we're not asking for the world. We're asking for what we deserve. We started off at forty six percent, okay, but if I get to twenty five percent or thirty or thirty five, who's who would say no to that? Regardless if you're not a worker or you're well, sure out. you would say sure you would say yes to that. But I'm talking about if but you're on the management side happen? and you have to multiply that increase times how many workers work, how many UAW members are there that work for the big three. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a multi-billion-dollar, you know, change in salaries and benefits that we're talking about here. While they have to undergo and somehow find a way to keep all of this solvent and to keep you guys happy and to to change over from from their 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 existing plants to the EV plants, which is going to be just again extraordinary. The idea that that, that the pay increases should be uh, as exorbitant as that at the same time is just a lot. It's a lot for somebody to swallow if you're if you're not vested in the you know invested in the uh, outcome one way or the other we are invested in, in in gm and we invested in them in in 08 and 09 when they when they ran it into the ground okay and the government had to come in and, and bail them out uh, along you know obama and bush worked together to do that and the uaw stepped in and said here we'll help you out and now they're making record profit record profit they're doing they're, they're doing better than they have, you know, in many, many, many years. And well, all we want to do is, is is stand up and fight for what we deserve. And we deserve, you know, economic justice. We deserve social justice. What does that mean? And, you keep saying social justice. What does that mean? Well, the work-life balance. Here, social justice is I don't want to have to work next to some guy that's making $16 an hour and I'm making 32 I want these people to be able to go out, make a good living. So you want the people who start, family. hold on, you want the people who are starting next to you at $15 an hour to make your wage, even though you've been there for 25 years? Sure. When I got hired. You want everybody to start years. out, hold on, you want a new worker to make the same wage as a 25-year veteran. I want them to come in and start at a wage that they can go ahead and have a quality of life that's like mine, and yes, work it, work up, you know, maybe the life of an agreement. 
to get you know four years to get to top scale. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I don't understand how you say there's nothing wrong with that. You're talking about somebody with no experience, no other qualifications. They're newbies. They're first into the plan at the very first time of their lives, and you, they should be making what you've made. You're making now after 25 years. You, you've been here, here for 25 I, years, and you want them to rise up to your level within just four years of a contract? Why, why wouldn't they have to work their way up over the long term like you did to get to $32 an hour? So, so let's go out. Let's go outside the. Uh, let's go outside the auto industry here for a second. You well, no, no. Let's stay there. Answer that for me, because it was your example. No, no, I, I will. I will. When I got hired at General Motors in 1999, all right, I was hired at a lower wage than what top scale was. It took me three years to get to top scale, where I was, I was level with everybody else. So, so in three years, you were making what somebody who's been there for 30 years was making. Absolutely. Okay, and, and see, I, I guess this is where we have to disagree, because I think that's insane. Well, so, I think here, seniority so, should be again, rewarded. I think seniority, hold on. I think seniority should be rewarded. I think pay increases that come along with more years of experience and more well, years of service. So that, I get thing, that. That's the good thing about a labor agreement, is that it keeps everybody, everybody on the same playing field. Yeah, but, but not everybody should be on the same playing field. And, and quite frankly, the fact of the matter is that the people who are working in the plants and making the cars cannot be on the same playing field as the CEOs who run the company. If they fail at their job, everything collapses. If you fail at your job, guess what? You get fired and somebody else gets slid right into your spot and nobody misses a beat. So, right? should, so let's, let's talk about, let's go outside here again. So you look at Yellow Freight, right? Yellow Freight. Yeah, I used to work for him. I used to work for him. I was a yeah, teamster. I, I got, know. I got two. I got two or three buddies that worked for him for thirty years. And guess what? Because of mismanagement, what happened? Well, they, they went under. Them. They they went under. But but is it just mismanagement, yeah. or did the union not Absolutely. not accept? Wait, from what I understand, could, the teamsters refused to accept it. a reasonable offer. And by the time I'll, they finally said, "Okay, we'll it. take it," it was too late. It was over. Since the government bailed them out too, and what they do? They ran it right back into the ground. Well, mismanagement. Well, Dan, I'll tell you what. Put it on the workers. Put it on the workers' back. I understand. That's what everybody wants to do. Put it on everybody's back. No, I just think there needs to be. I just. I I don't want to put it on any. Just to put it on the workers' back. But I do. I will say this, and and I really appreciate you coming on and and having this this conversation. Um, I'm looking for reasonableness. That's what I'm looking for here. Forty six percent is not reasonable. Thirty two hours work of for forty hours pay is not reasonable. It's not feasible. It's not sustainable. And no company could survive if they did that. No company could survive if they were forced to pay those kinds of wages and those kinds of concessions. We, We here. It was that was. The demands we put on the table it was a starting point. I know. And I, hope that start, I don't. I just don't know. I don't know how low you're going to come when you start off that that crazy high. I don't know if there's a reasonable uh, solution anywhere near in our future, and that means a protracted strike, and that means a huge hit to the American economy and all those well, people you're you talking what? about with social about justice this? and being able to pay their bills and everything else. You're willing to throw all of those people under the bus here for an exorbitant forty six percent starting point. I just don't find that. Here, reasonable. I'm not throwing. I'm not no, you, no, I mean the UAW, not you, Dan. Dan, not you. No, personally. no, the UAW. What the UAW is is we're fighting for for people even outside the UAW, people that are are, are working for non-union companies that are working for for other places that to get what you deserve. Okay, uh, you know, I, I have friends that work or family members that work outside in, in uh, uh, organized labor. Uh, uh, 
No, you know, I get it. I, I, I know I know what you're saying, and I, and I get it. And I'm thinking about people that are not just union workers outside of the UAW or anywhere else. I'm thinking about consumers as well, and what this is going to well, do to them here, when a, a $20,000 car is going to cost $27,000 because of what's going on right now. Uh, that doesn't help them either. Dan, I, I'm, I'm out of time. In fact, I'm seven minutes past our out of time. Thank you for coming oh, on sorry. UAW. That's okay. I, I wanted to have this conversation, so I appreciate you very much for coming on and having it. Dan Schwartz, UAW uh, Local 1005 President. Dan, best of luck to you and to all of us in this thing. Thank you very much. Thank you. You got it. 11.37, we blew through the news. I think we're probably done for the show now. In fact, you want to just wrap it, Seth, because we're probably, I don't know, you tell me where we are. We'll, I'll try to come back and say goodbye. Don't. Don't don't uh, don't sleep on the fact that I've got another three hours. I'm hosting the Dennis Prager Show coming up here starting in about 20 minutes. Uh, so you can uh, make sure to check in with me there on Dennis Prager. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.